Anticoagulant Adverse Drug Events, a conversation with Dr. Jean Storm. This webinar included a visual PowerPoint presentation. To view a video recording, visit the link in the description of this podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19 related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities, but we encourage everyone who's interested to attend. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a communication specialist with Quality Insights, and today's webinar topic is anticoagulant adverse drug events. And now I'd like to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jean Storm. Dr. Storm is medical director here at Quality Insights. She has a background in nursing home care, internal medicine, and healthcare leadership. She recently served as Associate Medical Director for Optum United Healthcare. She has also served as Regional Medical Director for 38 long-term care facilities in West Virginia. She earned her DO from Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed her postgraduate training at Mill Creek Community Hospital in Erie, Pennsylvania. Dr. Storm, thank you for joining us again today. Thanks, Kathy. So today we're going to be talking about anticoagulants, and um, I'm going to try to make this really simple, very direct, because I know that there's, there are very, a lot of common mistakes that happen around anticoagulants. And when an adverse drug event does happen around anticoagulants, it can be really catastrophic to our residents, not only leading to you know, minor adverse events that happen in the facility, but hospitalizations and even death. They're a pretty powerful class of medications. They're being used more frequently in our residents. So I just wanted to kind of talk about some tips that you can start thinking about when you're utilizing anticoagulants in your facility. So we're just going to talk about the types of anticoagulants, what anticoagulants treat, who among our residents are taking anticoagulants. We're gonna be talking about the risk of adverse drug events associated with these medications. And then we're gonna talk about some tools that you can utilize to keep your residents safe when utilizing this class of medications. So we're gonna understand the major types of anticoagulants, their basic differences, what are the indications for starting anticoagulants? And then we're going to be talking a little bit about warfarin. I know warfarin, which is Coumadin, is not used as widely in your facilities as the direct oral anticoagulants, which is that's your, your Eliquis and your Xarelto. I know there, that that Coumadin or warfarin is not used as frequently anymore, but we still have a lot of residents who are taking warfarin. And so we really have to pay close attention to those INRs. So I'm going to be giving you some tips around INRs. And then we're going to talk about the differences in dosing protocols between Eliquis and Xarelto, because there are differences in the dosing protocols. And I see a lot of mistakes around the dosing. So we want to make sure that the dosing is appropriate so we don't increase the risk of bleeding in our residents. So we have to be really careful. So when we talk about anticoagulants, so when we're, when we're talking about anticoagulants today, I know what, what you're, you might be saying initially is that I don't see any aspirin or Plavix on this list. So technically, when we think about blood thinners on a whole, we would be in, including our aspirin and our Plavix, but those are a type of medication called antiplatelet agents. So we're really not, we really don't include them in our anticoagulant medications. So when we think about 
our anticoagulants, we think about vitamin K antagonists. That's an antagonist means we can use vitamin K to kind of reverse warfarin, reverse Coumadin. So warfarin or Coumadin is a vitamin K antagonist. Then we have our low molecular weight heparin, our unfractionated heparin, that's our Lovenox or our anoxaparin and heparin. So um, that's that class of medication. And then our direct thrombin inhibitors are gargatraban, dabigatran, probably not a lot of residents that you're seeing. It's probably pretty rare that you see residents getting these medications. And then we have what are called our factor 10A inhibitors or our direct oral anticoagulants or our DOACs. You, you hear them being called. And um, that's the class of medication that we're going to be talking a lot about today. Our, that includes our Eliquis and our Xarelto. So we're primarily going to be gearing the conversation towards warfarin um, and Eliquis and Xarelto. But if you feel like you need some education around heparin um, or noxaparin, which is your Lovenox, feel free to reach out. We I certainly can um, include, give you some education around those medications as well, but just trying to keep the educational module kind of brief. So what do anticoagulants treat? Primarily, they treat venous thromboembolism. That's a VTE. Those are our PE, our pulmonary embolism, and our DVTs. So those two things are included in our venous thromboembolism VTE umbrella. So that's our, our DVT and our PEs. And then AFib. And what do we, why do we put patients on anticoagulants who have AFib? Because we want to prevent a thromboembolic stroke. We know from research that atrial fibrillation, because of the way the heart beats with atrial fibrillation, that it's not regular. It's, it's kind of caused some stagnant areas. So clots can develop in those stagnant areas and then travel onto the brain and cause a blockage in the arteries. And that's a stroke. So that's why we anticoagulate individuals who have atrial fibrillation. So we can kind of help keep that blood flowing and reduce risk of clots. So there are a lot of individuals who are taking anticoagulants, and this has increased over the last few years, especially in, in individuals who are older, which are our residents. So anticoagulation initiated within 12 months after atrial fibrillation increased from 20.2% in 2010 to 32.9% in 2020. So a lot more of our older adults are taking the anticoagulants, though it's Interesting that anticoagulant initiation is less when we have residents who have an older age, they have dementia, they have frailty, or they have anemia. Something to think about. This is a little bit controversial. The American College of Cardiology thinks that these individuals, maybe we need to look harder at anticoagulating them, but it's hard when we have individuals in nursing homes that perhaps they have the, their length of life is less, and we don't want to accelerate that. If an individual has a fall, they might have a brain bleed, and that might actually shorten their life. So we really have to think about it. Many older adults are receiving the incorrect dosage. I've seen it so very much. And, you know, we kind of count on pharmacy to catch things or other individuals to catch things. But I think it's important that when you're in healthcare, you realize that if you see a mistake, you need to take care of that mistake, whether it is report it to somebody else, 
fix it yourself. We are all in charge of preventing adverse events in any healthcare setting. So it's really important to know what the dosage is for these medications in case you see a, 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 an error, which happens a lot. So atrial fibrillation is the most common cardiac arrhythmia. It, as I said, it increases the risk of stroke. As you get older, you have an increased risk of developing atrial fibrillation. So as many as much as 10% of individuals over 80 have atrial fibrillation. And we want to utilize our anticoagulant medications to reduce the risk of thrombosis, thrombo thrombotic disease or stroke. We have to be very careful. Hospitalization rates due to adverse drug effects are four times higher in older adults. 66% of hospitalizations in older patients are due to only four drug classes, right? So it's that's pretty scary. Warfarin is up there. Insulin is very high. Oral antiplatelet drugs, so those are that's our aspirin or our Plavix, and then our oral hypoglycemic agents used to type to treat diabetes. So warfarin is a causes a lot of adverse drug events in our residents. So we have to be really careful. So when we start warfarin, it's important before we start warfarin that we assess the record we get and we record the correct diagnosis. So you, if you have an individual who's coming into the facility and they are on warfarin and you don't know why they're taking warfarin or Coumadin, can't just put down atrial fibrillation or PE. I've seen this happen so very much. We really have to go through the record. And if, if when you're putting in an order, you're not sure, it's, it's really essential to call the provider because that diagnosis is gonna prompt someone to say, this is a lifelong treatment or maybe it's a treatment for, for three months. So we oftentimes have patients that maybe only needed to be treated for three months, but they go on lifelong therapy because no one does their due diligence to find out why it was started, when it was started, who started it, any of that. And we don't want to increase anyone's risk. So, you know, when we put somebody on, on a lifelong warfarin, they don't need to be on it you could be setting them up for a really big event, an adverse event that happens when they didn't maybe need to be on the medication. So common diagnoses, valvular heart disease, atrial fibrillation, DE, PE, or DVT. I will say people who, residents who are receiving warfarin or Coumadin are typically receiving it because they can't get Eliquis or Xarelto for whatever reason, usually it is drug interactions. They're on other medications that they can't be taken off of. And so warfarin or Coumadin is, is, has a fewer drug interactions, but this still has them. So I have done this myself where I've had patients who are on warfarin or Coumadin, and I've done a lot of research to find out why aren't they on the direct oral anticoagulants like Eliquis or Xarelto and have typically found out it's due to other medications. You always want to assess the bleeding risk. And then you always want to make sure that you record what the target INR range is. It's typically two to three. The INR is two to three in our patient resident population. But in some residents, it might be three to 3.5 in certain conditions such as artificial valves. And 
in that case, a specialist like a cardiologist should indicate that INR range because it is out of the, the normal. And then it's always good to record the duration of therapy and a stop date order. I think it's always good practice to just even in write like a like a flag, you know, an order um, just could be assessed for duration of therapy for warfarin like in three months or six months. So then, you know, a provider can kind of be prompted to say, well, you know, can we stop this medication? So the time and therapeutic range is the amount of time that a resident spends in that INR range, which they need to be in. So it's typically two to three. So if, if the individual spends 100% of their time in with, with their INR within two to three, that's absolutely fantastic. They're 100% within the therapeutic range. The, the longer the period of time that a resident is within therapeutic range with their INR, the less risk they're going to have for adverse events like stroke, like, or, you know, increasing their clot. So for residents that have conditions where they're taking Coumadin or Warfarin, if you have an INR that's less than 1.7, you're doubling their risk of stroke. And if it's less than 1.5, you're tripling their risk of stroke. That's why it's so very important to keep a close eye on the INR and really manage it carefully. Studies have demonstrated that when we utilize a simple dosing algorithm for Coumadin, we increase the time that the resident spends in that therapeutic range where they are adequately protected for stroke. So it is good practice to utilize a dosing algorithm. So when we look at Coumadin or Warfarin in the nursing home setting, there was a study that was done that looked at residents receiving Coumadin in 25 nursing homes in Connecticut. A large number of residents, about 3,000, and they looked at the INRs of these residents over a one-year period. And they determined the amount of time that each resident spent in each INR range. So there were the therapeutic range for the INR in these individuals was two to three. So as you can see that a good amount of time, 36.5% of the time residents spent with an INR of less than two. So this significantly increased their risk for developing a stroke. I know typically in the nursing home, we're very worried that the INR is too high. And there's this kind of this idea that an INR of less than two is not great, but it's, it's safe. It's not safe. I mean, we, we triple an individual's risk for stroke if their INR is less than 1.5. We double the risk of stroke if the INR is less than 1.7. So we really have to be careful and be cognizant in making sure that we're doing our due diligence, the dosing is correct, we're checking INRs when we should be. And as you can see, about half the time, these residents were within the therapeutic range with their Coumadin. And then on the other period, they had, they had, you know, some individuals who were super therapeutic, their INR was high. So this algorithm is based on two sources that I cited at the bottom of the slide. And it's a simple uh, war for an adjustment. 
INR is less than 1.5, you can increase by 20%, 1 1.6 to 1.9, increase by 10%. But if this is a really good good tool that I have found. I developed this for nurse practitioners, a, a similar algorithm that I developed for nurse practitioners in a facilities that I worked with. And what the facilities did was they printed out the algorithm and put it in the nurse's station just to kind of help the nurse practitioners if they weren't sure. A lot of individuals, a lot of providers younger providers, I will say, younger than me. <laughs> I'm 48. I've done a lot of work with Coumadin and Warfarin. I'm very comfortable doing adjustments. But younger providers where DOAX, the Eliquis and Xarelto are being used so, many, so much more frequently, they might not be as comfortable with Coumadin. So it's really a good idea to have an algorithm available for providers who might not be as comfortable with Coumadin dosing. We also want to um, make sure that, you know, we're very careful with vitamin K. Vitamin K lasts a long time. So you might give an individual vitamin K who isn't bleeding if their INR is elevated. You say, oh, we'll just give them vitamin K to bring it down. When you give someone vitamin K, it puts them at an increased risk of developing stroke because you might bring that INR down very rapidly and it might stay there for a long period of time and it's going to be difficult to budge. So you really have to be careful with vitamin K unless an individual is having active bleeding, and then, you know, then you would definitely um, do so. But every provider is different, but just having a, an algorithm available in the facility, I think is really helpful. So tips for warfarin or Coumadin success. Utilize a flow sheet. The facilities that I have seen that have successful Coumadin management have a flow sheet for each patient. And the charge nurse knows when that INR is going to come back. They know that day. They have the flow sheet available. And as soon as that INR comes out, comes is available, they document it on the flow sheet and give it to the provider. And then it's very nice because the provider can see what the INR has been doing. So if you're getting an INR every three days and then INR has been 2.5, it's been in the therapeutic range, you know, for five, six, seven readings, then maybe you can start spacing those INRs out a little bit, but it's very helpful to the provider to utilize a flow sheet so you, the provider can see exactly what is going on with that INR, or if it's been within the therapeutic range for five or six readings, and then you see one that's 5.2, you might say, uh, let's maybe hold her Coumadin, recheck it tomorrow, you know, it might be, it's, it's more likely to be a fluke if you have all these readings that have been in the therapeutic range that have been normal, and then you have an elevated INR, you know, it's more likely that you might say it's a fluke, so you want to recheck. Always it, essential to consider medication changes. I love when I am on call and I start an antibiotic on a resident that the nurse on the other end of the phone tells me that the resident is receiving Coumadin because then I know I might, there are certain antibiotics that affect Coumadin. There are certain antibiotics that don't, and I will tell you what, it's a little controversial, but as, as a provider, I just want to be safe. I would go ahead and order an INR for the next day. Say if I was initiating an antibiotic, 
and the nurse tells me this resident is on Coumadin, I'm going to initiate an INR the next day. And then I might initiate, tell them, you know, probably also check an INR in three days or four days. I like to get those orders just in place. So there's no chance that it's going to, we're going to slip through because I've seen that happen where the INR is not checked and the resident has bleeding from their gums. And then somebody checks an INR and it's seven and no one kind of said the residents on Cipro and all of this. So it's just a really good practice, you know, in communication to make sure everybody is aware. Diet changes, certain foods contain, can, can affect um, vitamin, that certain foods that contain vitamin K can affect warfarin or Coumadin. So if there's any change in a resident's diet, always a good idea to, to check the INR. Always important to do a simple dosage schedule. If you have doses that change day to day, seen this a lot where you have somebody who's on Coumadin two milligrams Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then Tuesday, Thursday, they're on 1.5 and then Saturday and Sunday three, like it's just those that doesn't, it's does, it's not safe. It's good to just have a simple dosage schedule. Usually when I see that I wipe it out and I make it a simple schedule because we just want to make sure that we keep it simple and that that and we keep things simple, it helps prevent mistakes. And it's really a good practice to attempt to check the INRs on the same day of the week. Let's say way back, I used to have a, a lot of my patients on Coumadin in one facility, and all the charts were lined up, about eight or 10 charts, and the lab results were all flagged. I knew that on Tuesday, I did INRs. And so then I knew every single resident who was on, on Coumadin. And so then if you only, you know, you had seven instead of eight, you're like, nah, there was something not missed. And so it's really then easier to make sure you don't miss something if you're doing them, attempting to do all the, your regular checks on the same day of the week. Okay. So shifting a little bit, going to Eliquis and Zarelto, again, assess and record the diagnosis, make sure the diagnosis is correct. So we know the duration of therapy, assess bleeding risk, assess for medication interactions, notify the provider if there are any medication interactions. So when we're starting Eliquis, initiating Eliquis, we, if we have a resident, we find they have a DVT in the facility, we do an ultrasound, they have a DVT. Treatment is 10 milligrams twice daily for seven days and then five milligrams twice a day. If we're converting from warfarin, if we have a resident who was taking Coumadin or warfarin, you want to start when the INR is less than two. That's if you're switching. If you're doing stroke prophylaxis for atrial fibrillation, for Eliquis, it's five milligrams twice a day. That is the dosing. Eliquis is, does have a reduced dosing if two of the three are present, and I found this so many times with residents, if you have two of the three of these things present, if an 80, if the resident is 80 years old or older, they weigh less than 60 kilograms, the creatinine is less than 1.5. So if they have underlying kidney disease, so two of those things. So if they weigh 50 kilograms and they're 88, they get that dose of 2.5 milligrams twice a day. So two of the three of those things need to be present for the reduced dosing of Eliquis because that 
these if they have two of those any of those things those that creatinine or the weight um that will put them at increased risk of bleeding so that's why they have a reduced dose starting xarelto for if you're treating an initial treating an initial dvt or pe 15 milligrams twice a day for 21 days and then 20 milligrams daily if you're converting from coumadin or warfarin you want to start if that when that inr is less than 3 so you stop your coumadin if the INR is 2.4, you're good to go to initiating your Xarelto. Stroke prophylaxis, this is an individual who has AFib, say, 20 milligrams daily. If they are on dialysis or their creatinine clearance is less than 51, you want to reduce the dose to 15 milligrams daily. So bleeding risks, I'm going to talk about a little bit. This is, I think, a, a really good thing to document in the chart for a resident who is receiving an anticoagulant. Just a good idea to document their bleeding risk. And you can see this is how we calculate it. This is has bled, the has bled score. This is just one of them. Hypertension, abnormal re renal or liver function, stroke, bleeding tendencies, their INRs or um, labile. If they're over 65, they have R on drugs predisposing to bleeding like a like aspirin if they're receiving aspirin um, or if um, they drink alcohol. So we want to make sure we calculate this. This score does not mean it it excludes individuals from receiving anticoagulants, but it's a really good tool to communicate with patients to say you are at increased risk of bleeding and you are receiving these medications. I just want to communicate with you about your risk. Super important. Shared decision making is essential in healthcare, in, in any place in healthcare. So the DOAC score is a fairly um, new, and this is utilized for Eliquis and Xarelto because those are DOACs, and it assigns points for age, renal function, underweight status, stroke, TIA, embolism history, diabetes. So you, you can look up this DOAC score, your provider can look it up and utilize it and then talk to residents about their risk of bleeding when receiving these medications. And each individual point scored is associated with a 48.7% increase in major bleeding. So it's a really good idea to get an individual involved. And I talked about it in this slide. So what do we do with these bleeding risks? Or we calculate it and we know that the resident is at this, this is their score, they score four on the bleeding risk score. Very important then to initiate a conversation with family, the resident, you know, let them know this is your increased risk. Because if a resident has an episode of let's say it's tragic. I mean, it's like they had a GI, uh, developed a GI bleed and they died. At least you communicated the risks with them. They're aware. It. I think sometimes it's really difficult when it just comes out of nowhere, when residents think, oh, I'm safe, I'm safe. But we really need to communicate with residents about these, these the risks associated with their medications. Also, it's very important to communicate this risk with other providers, make sure that they are aware if, a, if another provider is initiating medications, they might write an order to change a care plan. They might 
right an order that puts an individual at risk of um, bleeding. So we really need to communicate that with other providers. And then also future events, if it, this bleeding risk is going to help inform our decisions, if we have a fall, if the individual has a fall that's minor, but they have a very increased bleeding risk, we might want to think about holding any of our anticoagulants a little bit longer, or if they have a procedure, maybe we would want to hold it a little bit longer. So anticoagulation associated adverse drug events can be due to medication error, adverse drug reaction, combination of the two. And I don't really like to talk about money, but hospitalizations associated with anticoagulant ADEs have been estimated at more than $2.5 billion. So that's a lot of money. So what are some symptoms of anticoagulant ADEs? Blood in the urine, blood in the stool, dark stool, severe bruising. You might have a patient who had a minor fall and they're bruised down half their body. So that is an ADE. Hematemesis, they're vomiting blood or they have coffee grounds, uh, emesis. Severe prolonged nose bleeding. Nose bleeding is fairly common with individuals who are taking anticoagulants, but severe prolonged epistaxis is a big problem. So if you have a resident who comes into your facility and then they're being discharged home on an anticoagulant, it's really essential to provide them education around how to manage their anticoagulants. This resource is available to you on our website. The link is there. And this should be given to them with their name on the top, list their medication, their goal INRs, INR, if that's if they're receiving Coumadin, should be listed up there. And then you should go through them and go through the, the resource and, and let them know, you know, if any of these things occur, um, it tells them exactly what to do. So it's a really great resource to send home with your residents. So anticoagulants, as we talked about, is responsible for a large amount of adverse drug events in our resident population. Coumadin dosing should be monitored closely to reduce risk of it going too high, causing bleeding, going too low, and putting our residents at risk for stroke. All residents taking anticoagulants should have a bleeding risk score done, and then results should be used to communicate with our residents and families to let them know what risks are associated. And that's it. Any questions? Thank you, Dr. Storm. It looks like we have a question. It says, is there a preference for the use of one DOAC over another in the geriatric population? So there was a one study that a lot of practitioners utilize in their decision-making, and it did favor Eliquis over which is a pixaban over rivaroxaban which are is your xarelto for risk of bleeding in older adults i had uh, I've, I've spoken with many pharmacists about that and um they, you know they also agree it it so that you know if we're looking at bleeding risk then perhaps that we would lean on that study um that eloquis is a little bit safer um though ease of dosing you know, Rivaroxaban or Xarelto is easier. So it, it you really something that you really have to talk to the residents about. But that is um, the one study that I've heard a lot of providers cite. Thank you for your question. And I think that's all the questions we have. So I believe we can go ahead and wrap up. 
Dr. Storm, thank you for joining us again today. And I'd like to thank all of you for joining us and hope to see you back here again next week. If you would like to contact Dr. Jean Storm, you can email her at jstorm at qualityinsights.org. You can check out our other interviews at qualityinsights.org slash qin slash multimedia.